So, Jeff, welcome to the pod. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So this is the conclusion in our series on Lashes, the Revolt of the Elites, and the Betrayal of Democracy, which Jeff has just written about for Wesley Yang's, it's like a Patreon project, right? Yeah, it's his um, correspondent society. Mm-hmm. Where he's, he's writing some material of his own, and then he's just soliciting contributions from other people on, on various things. Um, so you can check that out. It's, uh, it's an interesting project, and I think just another of these kind of attempts to start trying out different sort of independent media models. So Yes, uh, right now we are uh, recording this in the week uh, before the election when one of the top news stories is Glenn Greenwald starting a Substack. So uh, why don't you walk us through the argument of the piece? Because in it, you sort of delve into Lash's 1994 arguments and revolt of the elite. Yeah. So as a bit of background, I think I, <clears throat> I started um, thinking about the book relatively early this year because I had read some of the essays in it, but actually not the whole thing previous to earlier in 2020. And, but I remembered, and then I think I also noticed other people bringing up the way he talked about secession of elites from sort of common life in and initially talking about that in relation to the lockdown and the sort of um, growing divide between the sort of zoom class and everybody else. Right. And so the way that, that, that seemed to fulfill his sort of darker prophecies about, um, you know, that there were already, unfolding in his time about the ways that those who, as you discussed in a previous episode, Robert Reich was calling the symbolic analysts, right? Who essentially are people whose work takes place mostly on computers are, are able to create a sort of separate sphere, which is in many ways detached from the world around them, which is international or sort of global um, and kind of plugged into the, the global economy more than the national economy and is also, you know, networked. And so the, the, the initial context in which I started thinking about this book, again, was in relation to the, the ways that the, the lockdown, you know, really laid bare this, this rift between the sort of zoom, Zooming class and everybody else, right? And then, so that was part of it. And then the second part of it was that, you know, when you started to have the huge protests in the wake of the George Floyd killing and, you know, a number of people just noted that if you looked at who by and large was involved in the protests as well as who were kind of um, voicing support, you know, and making, making statements of support, it, it did seem to represent largely a, a, a quite elite sector, right? Which, which actually coincided with the sector in some ways that had been in some ways less affected by the lockdown in economic terms anyway. So this, um, so the, kind of these two things converged and that's, that's why I got interested in this book again. There was this essay by Ed West in Unheard that, that, was, that came out, I think back in June, um, that is about this. And West says, um, you know, he describes basically the events that were occurring in the early to mid-summer as an anti-revolution in which immigrant shops were ransacked and working-class neighborhoods forced to defend themselves from violent college-educated protesters and their allies. And then, I mean, another thing that really struck me were these weird videos of people, of of young, white, you know, college-age protesters 
like making fun of police for not having degrees and like saying like, well, you only had to go to school for three months for that job and like that. So that was some of the weird, like of all the complaints you could have about like (laughs) the U S police force, like police forces all over the country, like that you didn't go to Oberlin is like one of the more novel and revealing. Yeah. So in any case, so that's kind of the background of the piece. Um, I, basically point out that, you know, there have been various incidents of this sort. You know, there were these people who um, threw a Molotov cocktail at a cop car in Brooklyn, um, who were both like, you know, one of them worked at like a pretty fancy corporate law firm. Yeah, it was like a white shoe law firm, right? Yeah. And and then more recently, there was, I mean, the one I discussed in the piece is like, there was this, you know, relatively small sort of riot that took place in lower Manhattan where it turned out like a number of these kids were, uh, you know, very, not just sort of college kids, but like highly affluent ones. So, you know, there does seem to be a pattern here. I just want to add to that YouTube personality, Jake Paul participating in the Scottsdale, Arizona riots, and then getting charges for someone handed him a bottle of vodka (laughs) <laughs> and from a store, they just looted and he took it. And so that was a crime. And then they dropped the charges and everybody was like, oh, it must be because you drank Paul or like whatever. And then a few months later, uh, it turned out the FBI had actually picked up the case because it seems like him and some of his friends like stole guns from a gun store there or something. I don't know. And FBI SWAT came and raided his house. So I think I, yeah, I, think I did read about that, actually. Yeah. yeah. So that's just a nice little <laughs> addition there. I never thought of it till now, but it makes me imagine like Patrick Bateman just sort of getting caught up and like, you know, you see him in the street with like a Molotov. I feel like that's the spirit of it in a way. I I have a whole thing I want to get into on Patrick yeah. Bateman later with this, but um, let's keep going with the, with the summary, yeah. Jeff. So, so in any case, you know, what I noticed in relation to that, so there are kind of these two deployments of revolt of the elites, one in relation to the ways that, you know, you had this class that was the really severe economic realities that were crashing down a lot of spring. And then you had this kind of um, application of it, the riots and particularly the participation of affluent people in it. Um, and if you actually go back to the book, it's really more focused on the first scenario. In other words, when Lash uses the term revolt, he's taking it from the, as you discussed in a previous episode, the Ortega, I guess, said, book Revolt of the Masses. Um, but he's really thinking about elite um, secession, which is the term that he borrows also from Reich, actually, um, which, you know, is this kind of pulling away. It's it's carving out this this sort of semi-privatized sphere that is in many ways insulated from risk and accident, and that, that is also kind of a withdrawal from sort of common civic life. So that's that's really the theme, and that's the revolt that Lash is describing as a revolt against against the common life, against civic institutions, a sort of withdrawal and disinvestment. So the the piece kind of thinks about that in relation to a lot of what's been going on recently. And then also um, kind of, tr- you know, points out that one, one way that Lash's work needs updating is through this kind of attempt, more recent attempt to theorize elite overproduction or, you know, sort of elite hyper-competition that, you know, is most famously associated with Peter Turchin. But, you know, to my mind, the best uh, piece on it was The Real Class War by Julius Krein. Yeah, that piece is so good. 
is where he talks about it as elite radicalization. And essentially the argument is that you have a sort of split within the realms of the top, you know, sort of 10 to 20% of the economy of people who are relative to the, the very top, you know, 0.1% are, are actually stagnating and seeing their fortunes and opportunities decline and therefore are in ever greater competition with each other and are also um, radical, you know, are, are subject to a kind of radicalization which takes various forms, but, but is basically an, an attraction to, to various types of radical politics, um, which he argues, you know, will often involve invoking the working class or various minorities, but, you know, it is really about kind of their own declining status and trying to, trying to find ways of grabbing a bigger piece of the pot of a, of a shrinking pie. And so, you know, those are kind of the, the lenses through which I think we can read Lash's book and kind of bring it up to date because in terms of the way he describes the values of this class, um, you know, it's entirely on the money as far as I'm concerned. He, he really, um, you know, almost anything he says could have been written yesterday, but he's also describing this class at its kind of moment of sort of early Clinton era relative ascendancy when a lot of the other descriptions of this sort of new class, whether the Reichs or a little bit later, like David Brooks or somebody like that. Yeah, you know, the Richard kind of Florida guy he brought up. Florida. So the assumption of all these people was that, you know, this was the class that was really going to, that, that was going to do great. And I mean, and that is true relative to the working class, like the declining fortunes of the working class. But if, if in many ways they are also, you know, I mean, if there is a phenomenon of over, overproduction, partly because the prescriptions of people like Reich, right, that the Hulash critiques are, are basically, you know, increasing social mobility for the, the working class, which, you know, as Lash points out, and as came to be, you know, essentially means that a handful of people will be plucked out of these communities and basically then kind of cut off from them and like brought into this sphere of secession and given the opportunity to thrive relatively within it. So Lash points out the shortcomings of that in his time. Another shortcoming would be simply that, you know, if, if you end up doing that enough, then you have overproduction and greater competition for fewer opportunities within that sphere. And so I think that's that's sort of the the panorama that we're contemplating today. Yeah, I mean to make a really hideous pop culture reference, I think that was the the more brilliant part of like the Hunger Games series was how the kids would be plucked out of these wretched districts. And if they survived, then they became part of this like media coterie for the amusement of the thing. But it's also clear that these were some of the more like durable and perhaps vivacious members of that. So it was a great way to sort of like through lottery, like make sure there would be no leaders below. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and then so that has to do with, you know, if, if you've kind of demolished the basis of a common common life, um, common set of civic institutions and so on, then the sort of uplift, you know, the, the kind of um, idea of some kind of uplift mm-hmm. that, that essentially sort of Clintonite types turned into just a, a sort of careerist social mobility project. Um, yeah, it just means that you're you're actually depriving communities. <laughs> you know, one very dark way to look at it is, in many ways, you're actually depriving 
developing communities of leadership, right? By by, by doing of, that. Yeah. A lot of them yeah, I mean, I think about like the continuity between the new left and like whatever we're living with now. And I think it makes sense if we look at Reagan and sort of what the Reagan what Reagan comes to mean, where like skepticism is basically like an oppressive crime against the Reagan morning in America thing. But I think Kurt Anderson, the novel said that, um, commenting on this, he said that there's very little difference between do your own thing of the 60s and every man for himself in the 80s. And then the synthesis of that sort of shows up in the Clinton 90s thing. Yeah. I mean, and Lashes, I mean, the culture of narcissism is kind of, Mm -hmm. has a lot of, uh, I mean, it is written before the Reagan era, but, you know, pretty much calls it, I mean, in terms of that, that fusion of the sort of 60s spirit with this kind of acquisitive, you know, the celebration of sort of acquisitive Mm -hmm. individualism and even greed as sort of forms of self-realization that, kind of reached their pinnacle in the 80s and then the clinton era you get this kind of toning you know you it's like you've got to put away the sort of michael milken types but you replace them with these i mean you replace them with the robert rubin types i guess (laughs) these totally awful people right who who still managed to you know pass themselves off as sort of enlightened liberals (laughs) while they're basically allowing the country to be ravaged the real debt economy in america explodes in the Reagan era after deindustrialization and that trend like accelerates and continues into Clinton and then with Glass-Steagall which we know leads to the financial crisis I mean it seems to me one of the consequences and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this of this class being separated from common life is that there has been no Mm. serious reckoning with many of the decisions that have been made in America over an incredibly long period of time since like the 70s. John and I were talking the other day where it's like, despite everything, it seems like we're on holiday from thinking about consequences as an empirical phenomenon writ large in the country. I, I just, I, I don't, you know, it's it's shocking to me how, I mean, you know, one thing I've seen a few people comment on it recently is like, you know, it's interesting that the way that the media has been tracking like COVID impact, right? The deaths and you know, that they're con- you're constantly being shown these graphs and charts and statistics and so on. But, you know, just think of all the other disasters that have unfolded and that have, you know, subsumed large portions of the population where, which were treated with total indifference compared to that, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's important to me to f- that there was like the famous Financial Times death chart, which I used to have to check every morning as part of my job for COVID. And that there was no such chart for the fallout of 2008 and people's lives that it ruined. Or there was like no discussion of like what the CARES Act was going to mean other than, holy shit, I don't know what my neighbor's doing. Other than, uh, you know, we need the 1.2K for everybody and some unemployment stuff. And then basically uh, BlackRock is now the Fed. Yeah, and I mean, I always think about, if you just go back, you know, you got NAFTA, which I think somebody, I saw somebody post like an oldish video of Thomas Frank, just talking about how like, you know, basically with NAFTA, people knew exactly what that was going to mean, but. Oh, there's a, there's an old Charlie Rose clip where Goldsmith, Lord Goldsmith from the UK is talking to him. And he's like, if, if you do this in America, it's going to be a disaster. 
Mm-hmm. It's going to destroy working class life. And some woman from Clinton administration just like totally gaslights the both of them and like comes up with all of these obviously bullshit on their face arguments about what happens when you offshore or open up borders to like totally unionized labor that can be ruthlessly exploited by the ruling class to the detriment of the native working class or whatever. It was gobsmacking to just like watch people lie so openly. It really reminded me of the Iraq war in that way. (laughs) One of the things that I've been realizing more and more is we really like everything you guys are saying is pretty much dead on. I was just reading about um, U.S. media coverage of North Korea and how it essentially issues either from like uh, U.S. government officials being interviewed without any like criticality, criticality whatsoever or like picking up the rumor mill generated by South Korean intelligence services. I was, you know, kind of surprised to learn that the idea that any of the leaders of North Korea are psychotic was just something invented by South Korean intelligence. Like there's never really been any other, you know, like as a news agency, if you were like Aaron Sorkin or whatever, you might be like, we got to fact check this. But like no one cares or does that. And they'll just like interview some guy from the State Department or from the Joint Chiefs and then be like, okay, that's the truth. Like, so I won't even really source that guy all the time. I'll just pretend like this is common knowledge. And it gets weirdly laundered into the public consciousness. And he points out in the book that like a couple of weeks later, it'll turn out that like all of that was totally false. But by then, like nobody cares. So like that's never going to end up in the news cycle. So you end up with this completely false idea of, geopolitical situation in which we bear like 99% of the responsibility for the actual situation sort of seeming like the fault of these crazy, you know, like it's completely warped beyond anything, having anything to do with reality. And it's also just sort of like entertainment that we pick up and put down at will. It doesn't really matter to us and we don't really care what goes on there, even though, you know, what goes on there always lies squarely at our feet and within our power and like the media if you believe that the media has any kind of role in sort of like the discourse generation and shaping and happening is just like in a total failure state that I do not think it'll ever recover from without being completely swept away. Honestly, like if you think about the hysterical stuff being like peddled 24 seven and then like the crazy ways you see people around you acting because all they do is watch CNN Mm -hmm. and then they're like in a constant state of crisis. Yeah. Because like, oh, we got him. We got him. Like, we're going to get Trump tomorrow. Like, he's going down. Oh, no. Like, he's not going down. Like, what if democracy is destroyed in a couple days? Like, what will I do then? And, you know, they're like freaking out and breaking down. But then you think back and like, this kind of stuff's been happening at least since the 90s or 80s, even if maybe in a slightly lower volume. It's still been the basic kind of like function of media. Although I would say that it's been changing a lot. And if you look at generationally, maybe people of like the boomer generation, you can still kind of figure that they're pretty plugged into some cable cycle or another. Um, Whereas people our age are a lot weirder and more like rhizomatic in the way that we grab info feeds and then like form our personalities based on them. So you could have like, you know, a bunch of different RSS feeds. And if you looked at the blogs that are in that, then you would know like, okay, this person is Deleuzian libertarian communist like Justin. (laughs) or something like it's a lot more niche esoteric and eclectic and but no less i think interesting or troublesome uh 
and and it does mean this kind of fracturing of of narrative and of you know which is connected to institutional fragmentation you know it, w- one thing i've been amused by recently is how msnbc kind of like deliberately pursued the fox news model to great success um you know and somebody like you know rachel maddow like pretty explicitly like modeled herself on fox, various fox hosts and you know was was very smart as a business person in that regard um but what's hilarious now is that you have all these people who you know spent like the 90s and aughts just like watching john stewart make fun of fox news and like you know their whole identity political identity is being is formed around like fox news is evil but then now they're mostly like just following this channel which is essentially just the progeny of fox news (laughs) and so i mean because clearly like fox did kind of pioneer you know, shifts in media that have then continued to kind of accelerate and, and splinter. But the the basic the basic way that it figured out how to drive engagement, but which is interestingly amnesiac, right? By stoking up this constant fever pitch of hysteria about this or that, but it's it's totally amnesiac because there's no there's no consistency over the in terms of the things that you're supposed to be hysterical about, right? Yeah, there's no long-term narrative. There's no there's context. A, there's none of that. Uh, there's just a great Baudrillard, like, little aside where he says, you know, you can understand what's going on with media when, like, something goes wrong or the transmission cuts out or people just, like, mess up and stop talking and you realize the horrible void that is there beneath the surface of noise and you realize that, like, once this noise stops... Like there never was anything there, no capability of like duration or even signal. It's just sort of like a constant stimulation that's always papering over absolutely nothing. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's a very like aesthetically pleasing sort of way to imagine that operation, which feels totally true. Like it can't connect anything to anything else in like a narrative way. That's not moment to moment. Totally. Nebulous. Yeah. It's, this is where, the movie The Network was so prophetic because mm-hmm. the you know the guy who gets his own segment for ranting and raving when he was actually like having a nervous breakdown at the idea of losing his job gets that talking to where he's like this is just a college of corporations like pursuing its own interests that's all that's happening here but the point is I think the real brilliance of that movie isn't just that oh there's corporate interests in the media the real brilliance is the way in which rebellion becomes hegemonically prestigious. Right, right, right. Which seems to tie right into some of the things you point out in your piece, Jeff, about how this fractured elite comes to see themselves as insurgent rebels on behalf of the working class, so much so that some of them will absolutely burn down a neighborhood they don't live in. You know, it's been very interesting to me just... Um, you know, because of my particular age and, you know, my own political leanings, which, you know, have generally been on the left since I was a teenager. You know, like when I was a teenager, I don't know, being a Marxist or something, as I like claim to be, I mean, it was just kind of obviously ridiculous in a way. I mean, it, it, you know, because there was nothing to attach it to. I mean, like I, I, I remember like attending protests and things and New York that age and you know the people like the only people who are like communists or socialists were just these kind of somewhat embarrassing like old guys selling you know these kind of crappy low production newspapers of their like various splinter parties and stuff I mean it just what you know really wasn't a thing you know and this was like the late 90s um and then 
you know, when I, even, even when I was in like college grad school in the aughts, it was honestly, I guess I got involved in certain kind of somewhat leftist causes. Um, but it was honestly pretty, there wasn't much of anything out there, right. As anybody, I mean, there was the Iraq war, anti-Iraq war coalition and so on, but it wasn't tied to kind in general to like a larger vision of society that the people involved in that really shared. Right. Yeah. No, it was purely negative. And the enraged against this obviously awful thing that was happening, which, you know, it made sense to be enraged by, but, but so, you know, what's interesting is like, yeah, I just, I didn't see any of any of what you see now really until around 10 years ago. I mean, basically after Occupy, right. That, that's yeah. it's like that's the, the watershed. watershed, you know, in some ways it's like, yeah, it w- it was, Culturally, it wasn't even necessarily that prestigious, but, you know, if you were in elite higher higher education institutions, it was just expected that you were, you know, a Democrat with range of correct opinions. It wasn't really. And then if you were, you know, I mean, I remember being in grad school with plenty of professors who were nominally Marxists and so on, but I mean, they were basically just Democrats. They weren't, (laughs) they, they weren't like really any different than the the sort of centrist economist down the hall or whatever, if, if they're like a Marxist lit professor, you know, in terms of, if you just like observe them objectively, they, they voted for the same people. They had the same habit, you know, it was just like a purely intellectual. Pursuit. I mean, yeah, they were part of the same class, you know, so of course. It's been the official um, CPUSA line for like 10 plus years as well too. Yeah. I remember looking at their website and they're like, get ready to vote Democrat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, primaries <laughs> or, you know, in the midterms. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And so, the, and in that sense, it hasn't really changed. Right. It's like, it's, uh, that's, that is kind of ultimately what most of these people are still doing. You know, I mean, and to an extent, I feel like I was in a very minor way involved because I, um, you know, I mean, I wrote for like Jacobin and, places like that kind of back in the early 2010s. Um, that was definitely, there was a period at between Occupy and the first Bernie campaign where suddenly all of these kinds of, you know, signifiers of, you know, historical leftist radicalism just became kind of de rigueur among, you know, highly educated people. There's a lot to unpack there, but the way that I try to think about it in the, in the piece on lashes that, you know, if you combine the things that the sort of cultural attributes of this class, you know, which is basically that it's kind of deracinated, you know, and I mean, I a hundred percent feel this way myself. Like I'm describing this from the inside, right? That you're deracinated, you're kind of disconnected from community in any meaningful sense. You're kind of mobile, you know, you're highly mobile, you know, you're probably in a city, um, and, you know, living in this kind of a not, you know, community of like anonymous people. Um, so, you know, within that context, on one hand, you're just kind of in this situation of postmodern subjectivity, or you're just kind of stitching together some kind of sense of self out of these like stray signifiers, right? Most of which are inherited, right? Because we we're in the phase of, you know, Baudrillardian sort of reproduction rather than production. We're not, we're not making anything. We're not, we're just reproducing symbolically what exists and so we're just kind of reaching back into the past and finding bits and pieces that we can kind of stitch together into some vaguely meaningful political identity or something like that um so that's you know that that's kind of how i see it i mean i had a a like 
a thread on Twitter not long ago about the the Jacobin guillotine cover, which was the IKEA. Oh yeah, that looks like an IKEA thing. That was great. That was, I think, the first. It was at least the first print copy of Jacobin that I ever read. And um, you know, it's cover. Did you perfect? What's that? What was the cover? Sorry. Oh yeah, it's a. It's just a. It's a guillotine, but it's um. It's like it looks like an IKEA. You know, when when you buy IKEA furniture, you get the pamphlet with, with like the assembly instructions on it. So it's like it's the guillotine, but it looks like an IKEA product. Amazing. Which is so. Um, I mean, and and I've heard like you know I've even heard like Bashkar Sankara say that you know basically their like subscriber base is sort of grad students and and you know having spent a lot of time around grad students, what do they all have in common? They all have IKEA furniture. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all have the same IKEA furniture. <laughs> so yeah. it's like it's such a sort of perfect representation of that that sort of moment you know you're you're looking for these kind of signifiers in this kind of ludic postmodern way and sort of putting them together um you're sort of somewhat and this is something lash talks about at least in culture of narcissism the kind of self-deprecating humor that, mm-hmm. that functions as a kind of shield as a kind of narcissistic shield you know that that you can use it basically to to kind of preempt criticism so could we but say think, that like contemporary racial politics is one way among many for you to kind of like try and subsume yourself into some sort of thing that gives your life a sense of identity and meaning. And given what you just said, like a really apt description of the way that like many of us are experience our subjectivity these days is sort of like, well, I just need, you know, to take the last frame to narcissistically kind of find enough like exterior things that I can like make a part of me that tell people who I am and then I'll be that thing even though if you have like just the right vantage you can see that it all is totally meaningless in a like actual way but it's like a symbolic representational like array of stuff and so you're like a grad student who may not be rich but certainly isn't poor in a lot of very specific ways either but you don't have to be that if you're like the guy on the streets with the people you know what i mean in a way like you're something else then you're like playing the video game now you know you're dissociating into the virtual world of like i'm this guy who i kind of think is cool because i'm out there with the people or whatever i'm an ally yeah totally alighting like your actual real life that's made up of the real stuff that you do all day for the like few moments that are like the thing that you now make kind of like don't you see who i am stuff Mm -hmm. there's nothing outside of the larp as you would say jeff (laughs) yeah so so i think um i mean and so there is an ambiguity here right which is that i think if you take like the say the sort of turchin or or crying reading you know there is this sense in which there is a real class politics which has to do with a sort of relatively um sort of malcontent sector of the educated elite that's in a way trying to attach itself to various causes as a way of as a way of engaging in battle against the sort of upper echelons of the elite. So there's that there's that sense in which it could be understood as okay there is a kind of real form of class politics here it's just not the class politics that it's presented as, right? It's it's a class politics that's sort of actually, you know, using um, using these other kinds of class signifiers as sort of a shield. You know, ideally involve I mean, is is based on a kind of fantasy of a, a kind of broad alliance, basically between the you know PMC or whatever you want to call it, and a sort of some version of the working class, right? Mm-hmm. 
but you know there's very little <laughs> you know there there's very little evidence of anything like that happening i mean obviously many of the people involved in these kind of things like do genuinely believe in that right i mean i think you know and having sort of been supportive of the sanders campaign you know i think many of the people involved in that like they did actually believe that's what they were doing and i think there was a more plausible case to be made for it probably the first the first round when bernie was kind of more um, in various ways able to just uh channel other forms of discontent right that there weren't there weren't the kind of discontent of this low status sector of the sort of urban educated elite like the yeah. diabetes medication stuff yeah definitely no one cares about that of this group at all even though as was pointed out i think when bernie talked to killer mike like diabetes is a black community problem as much as it is mm-hmm. anything else mm-hmm. um so you would think that being anti-racist with you know like marshalling like better controls on the prices of that stuff so people don't have to like ration and then die mm-hmm. because they were rationing because they couldn't afford it yeah i mean the dynamic sort of reminds me of the like the sds in the 60s you know for so for the first while when they were protesting the vietnam war they were incredibly cruel to soldiers who'd been drafted right and you know like baby killer stuff like that and like the important thing to realize is like i'm not about to mount a defense of the police brutality that went on there but i think if you realize that most of the cops are working class guys whose brothers Mm -hmm. and in some cases sons had been drafted and you have some rich kids from harvard calling your child a baby killer for being forced into a war that like had nothing to do with him it looks very different than like the Chicago seven narrative we get on Netflix is I guess my point and speaks to the sort of divisions we're talking about. So it seems like they've existed for a while. And I will say like to the protesters credit at some point, they do figure out how to incorporate veterans who are like, you can't keep doing this. This is alienating and weird. No one likes it. And it makes us all feel like monsters and not and like most of us didn't even want to be over there anyway. So right just to do some historical justice to both sides of that. But I think the initial conflict is a lot of like how I see some of this stuff playing out now. I did a little bit of research on the kind of main, I'm trying to remember what made me think about this again, but I, I tried to write something about like the, what happened to all the weather underground people. I think back when there was the whole like Bill Ayers is the evil mastermind between yeah. and Obama thing. Like I was kind of interested in actually like looking into those people and, you know, trying to like, give a more realistic take that wasn't the kind of weird right-wing conspiracy take, but also wasn't just kind of treating Fan them. fiction. I mean, they were like remarkably like irresponsible people and they, they were all like incredibly spoiled. They were yes. not surplus elites. They were the, they were the elites of the elites. Like yes. Bill father was like a CEO, you know, mm-hmm. a number of the core weather underground people were of that kind of a background. I mean, they were like literally, yeah, I mean, I grew up around... They were the 0.1%. They were not the sort of bottom of the top 10%. Right. I grew up around the Ayers family. That was very much my experience of dealing with them as I came yeah. of age, you know? I, You know, so I think going back to your earlier question, I mean, you do have that prior moment of sort of the signifiers of radicalism being highly prestigious. And, you know, I think it, it comes at a time when you have at, th- at that point you have basically these um, you have these children of these kind of stolid upper middle class to to wealthy families you know which kind of come out of this like 
older American dispensation that, you know, Lash describes as well, right? Of like, there's basically this, you know, the, uh, any city or town will have like, it's kind of local elites who are like attached to it in some way and have some kind of multi-generational investment in it. And so with the sort of leather underground crowd, one way to think about it is it's symptomatic of the kind of, of, of you know, mediatization and sort of globalization because, you know, it, what they find most um, kind of electrifying is looking overseas at, I mean, often actually like elites in those countries are doing when they're waging like anti-colonial insurgencies, right? But, you know, or take, you know, take like Fidel Castro. I mean, Castro is, is like the scion of a huge, <clears throat> you know, sugarcane um, baron mm-hmm. family. You know, so and quite a few, you know, quite a few of those people of sort of revolutionary leaders who are kind of idolized in that period are not not exactly um, from sort of uh, humble backgrounds. And so, you know, there is this kind of way that, you know, y- you can see all this cool footage of these like badass guys who are, you know, becoming the leaders of their nation by like, you know, taking up arms seems a lot cooler than like inheriting, you know, dad's firm and living in Toledo or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, it reminds me of the, um, the, I forget their names, but it was like one representative from communist China and then one Soviet guy and they were talking and the Soviet guy says, you know, isn't it strange how, you know, I grew up the son of a poor farmer and like now I'm running the Soviets. And oh, like, it was, you know, um, it was, it was Joe and Lai and Khrushchev, maybe? Khrushchev, yeah. Khrushchev, yeah. And, and John Lai is just like, uh, you know, who's from a wealthy background says, yes, the one thing we have in common is that we're both traitors to our class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, which I, is, I think yeah. was great. I mean, I don't think it's like, you know, there are many examples of people coming from basically being tra- class traitors too, like daddy's firm. And I don't think that that's like... I don't want to like discredit that entirely, right? Because some of these were like successful revolutions. However, uh, I think to build on your point, Jeff, like one of the things we were talking about way earlier before we like officially uh, started recording was like the surface to surface comparison where it's like, well, like when the Soviets like storm, you know, the castle or whatever, like that's kind of a riot. And like, I'm doing a riot. So, like, I must then be doing some sort of revolution, right? Like, thus, this riot is an act of birth of a new world. Yeah. Well, it's, it's sort of the, I, I think it's that, um, I'm trying to remember who, who's been using this phrase recently, but it's like the cargo cult, mm-hmm. right? It's that, that if you just kind of, um, you know, it's sort of if you build it, or if, if you destroy it, they will come. If you destroy it, the revolution will come. You know, if you... <laughs> if you, if you uh, if if you just like collect enough of the signifiers, then somehow that will make it real. Yeah, um, yeah. Pokemon, but for radicals. Yeah, right. And but but what's well the continuity the continuity with you know people like Ayers and you know that crowd is just the lack of any real social base going on back then, and and the way that they were as you were just describing in a way kind of actively alienating a sort of social base mm-hmm. uh, that. You know, in theory, if they were going to do a Marxist-Leninist revolution, you think they might want to appeal to. But um, yeah, so so the fact that there is no, um, and you know, and this is a very um, Lashian thing that you know, it essentially becomes a kind of a form of signaling within within the elite that is is detached from any really from any politics, even in any sort of historical sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and and is anti-democratic, right? For the reason that there's a pretty good Chesterton quote where he says that the poor have always been rebels but never been anarchists, and I think it speaks to the fact that even back then there was a pretty solid awareness that poor people have never been interested in dissolving their social bonds and just being free to do whatever. Usually their concerns were like, something is harming me or hurting me or killing me. So I need to like negotiate the end to that and maybe something better for myself and Mm -hmm. my family and village and so on. And so their politics are usually like, let's just get a better government that does better things rather than the current horrible government, which we have, you know, Mm -hmm. in whatever made up place we're talking about versus the people who are like, I just kind of want to lay waste to everything because I have a yacht. And so like I can leave <laughs> Yeah, and like, but I'll have laid waste to it in a sort of like phantasmagoria. And then, you know, it'll be sort of like really liberatory and then I'll leave. And yeah, it's sort of like the Nietzschean last man as beyond good and evil. That's, I think that that's part of what's going on there. And, you know, we've been talking about what it means uh, for rebellion to become like chic, right? I think this is Zizek's things about how like the overwhelming imperative of post-industrial society is to enjoy and to yeah. express yourself and that that's how it works. And I've been thinking a lot about the end of Brad Easton Ellis's American Psycho, right? Because Patrick Bateman, as we've talked before on the pod, is like uh, some financial guy during like the NJR Nabisco era in the 80s. His little brother who features uh, in uh, Ellis's first novel and his second is a Bennington student at one of these small liberal arts colleges, uh, as I myself have been twice. And, you know, he goes on, whether he imagines it or not, an insane killing spree in sort of the novel's climax that involves like a helicopter chase scene or whatever. And then he ends up at like a corporate brunch and it's like nothing has ever happened. And he is like sort of looking around the room and is sort of like stunned that it hasn't mattered what his transgression has done. And the last line of the novel is him like looking at this sign that says, this is not an exit. One of the things that I think about is that like, you could just replace him doing like all of these crimes or whatever with like any other enjoy yourself transgression, whether it be rioting in the streets and it produces the same problem and that it's totally divorced from any sort of actual social meaning beyond like the purest self-indulgent nihilism. And it has the same lack of any like actual consequence in a certain sense. Like there are consequences like we've highlighted several times, which is the destruction of property that people's lives relate to in a variety of different ways. But yeah, or- it has no broader social consequence in that it's over and like no one cares or hardly remembers it. Mm-hmm. It is very much like now you're at brunch and it's like, yeah, that happened. And yeah, again, I mean, I was reading like Aaron Cantu's like latest investigation for the intercept or whatever about how like they're just like random people who were part of these communities or whatever that were posting about it on Facebook and like live stream some of these riots because they were mad that cops were killing whoever in their neighborhood. And the DOJ has just decided to like detain these people without trial, you know? Mm-hmm. So like the consequences if they happen, like don't happen to the people that we're talking about, uh, unless you throw a Molotov cocktail at a cop um, when you're off the clock from your white shoe love. Yeah, I mean, the stra- one of the strangest things whenever there's like one of these, I mean, there was the most recent one in Philadelphia, you'll see the people, yeah. the people defend it. I mean, so, it, you know, it seems like when these things happen, you know, it's obviously a weird confluence of factors. Anyway, the first thing I'll say is um, I find it very odd that, you know, particularly kind of media types who want to, jump on like defending these when they happen or like, you know, the two most common things are like, 
ew, well, who gives a shit about, you know, Walmart or Family Dollar or whatever, which is like, well, clearly you don't because you don't live in that kind of neighborhood and like, you know, you like disdain people who shop in those places. So like the idea that like, oh, it's cool to riot so you can destroy these déclassé stores. I mean, it's just like, you know, that, that's, that's, that response, which I've seen a lot, is like a pretty telling one. But then the other one is the like, well, they all have insurance, so it's fine. And it's like, well, I mean, it's kind of weird to claim that like, this is the revolution, we've got to go do the revolution, but they all have insurance, so you know, you know, it'll be yeah. fine. For the- it's <laughs> like, <laughs> I just think it's the whole game where it's like, okay, so this is the revolution, but you know, no one will suffer from the consequences of the revolution. Even the yeah. people you had because they all have insurance. Like, well, just- it's sort of like, it's Hayek's, Hayek's revenge where you're like a priori nerfed by private property structures. <laughs> One of the most bizarre things, I think just in the initial Minneapolis riots was um, that you had multiple narratives circulating simultaneously you know some of which were that well this is just this is like the boogaloo boys like going in and starting these you know starting the looting and stuff or like this is the cops themselves who are doing this to make it look bad and then on the other hand like saying oh no it's good and you know noble and important and it's like i swear all these narratives were circulating around it and they still do a little bit like you still Mm -hmm. see some of these crop up here and there even though it seemed like it solidified with, you know, this was just and good and we all support it. But <clears throat> then occasionally you'll still see the, oh, actually, well, this store that was destroyed, well, actually the people who started it, you know, Boogaloo Boys or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, well, um, I mean, the first thing that's interesting is, again, this issue of narrative, right? That there, there's no, I mean, not there's no, um, there's no real desire for coherence, right? There's just this kind of weaponization of whatever mini narrative kind of can be, summoned up for any particular context but um, they don't really have to add up they're just they're all kind of circulating and serving some purpose but i'm thinking a lot about that with uh, everything that steve bannon and his buddy have been doing it just sort of like creates such an intense amount of dysphoria at a Mm -hmm. certain level when you realize that like oh this is just it's like constant low level like psychological warfare that the battleground is like the media and it's just going on forever and nothing means anything like nothing matters or is real in a certain sense because you can't actually access whatever the reality is anymore and like nobody who has any kind of like hand on that scale like cares so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like so immensely brutal to imagine that that you just kind of have to then disengage and go lay down (laughs) i was curious what what you guys thought about the part about the media and the press in Latin Revolt of the Elites. I thought it, it, it seemed sort of interesting in that it, he was actually kind of critiquing really the, the sort of media dispensation that a lot of people today are sort of nostalgic for. Oh, uh, the like, the you need equal that. time for equal sides kind of thing? Yeah, and also the thing about, he has this interesting discussion of how advertising, like the, the advertising-based model changes the nature of of newspapers and magazines because they they kind of you know that's where he argues this kind of neutral like voice from nowhere sort of media style comes from and that 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 basically because advertisements you know because advertisers want their ads to be presented as kind of trustworthy and reliable at least in the sort of mid-century moment when that's kind of the... the yes, uh, the things have changed a the lot. <laughs> that, that sort of the, 
the you know the fact that ads are all over newspapers and magazines actually changes the the way that sort of truth is being presented in those mm -hmm. publications and you know he kind of argues that's where you get this like pseudo neutrality and pseudo objectivity that it that is tied to this advertising which mm -hmm. i thought was interesting because it definitely you know he's writing that at the moment probably i mean i think the 90s were kind of the the moment when um, that model was most fully entrenched before it collapsed with the internet. Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, I think my understanding is like, you know, that's when newspapers revenue for newspapers and magazines was like at its highest ever. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you could like be a New York, you know, magazine, you know, writer, freelancer and regularly earning like a dollar a word, you know? So it's, it's interesting um, seeing him critiquing the media dispensation that, clearly no longer exists and sounds quite strange to us, even though mm -hmm. I remember it. And, you know, you still see it to some extent in, you know, the most prestige media, at least you see the kind of last gasps of it. But I thought, you know, but it was interesting that he was actually more, you know, had a, seemed to have a certain nostalgia for the much more kind of, in a way, kind of fragmented and pugnacious media environment of the 19th century, right? Which he, he seemed to actually think was sort of a healthier way of engaging in public discourse probably because i think it, technologically it obviously had to rely upon a bunch of local centers in mass literacy so you would have like coffee shop discussions which were you know like formed over europe of course as well in the 18th century and like yeah. everybody and their mom can publish a journal and a periodical and a newspaper and you can hash out like this or that issue related to your town versus like the nation and things like that, but it kind of required a large amount of participation in order to function in a certain way. And yeah. I think that while you might still say, like, there are obvious class boundaries to who can participate in that and who can't, and, like, the people in the mine aren't, but there's still maybe what Lash would say is, like, well, the elites hadn't fully seceded, so that was okay, like, in a certain sense. Like, the elites were still at least local representatives and so even if only they were able to participate in this kind of combative media environment they were at least doing actual combat for like actual things related yeah. to where they were based whereas now we have kind of like a you know a completely simulated form of combat which is really it's like combat for engagement i think like you were saying like that's mainly what they want to drive and pick up is just like eyeballs on screen clicks and such things like that and so the methods are obviously going to be um chosen and used solely for those aims and like we've cataloged probably a lot on this show like the psychological fallout of that for many people is kind of horrific and by way of being like a simulated conflict there's no resolution yeah there's no like goal even it's just sort of like the only point of the conflict is so that you can feel like you're in the middle of one, but it doesn't have any of the hallmarks of a true conflict where it like eventually overcomes some kind of opposition that needed to be some, you know, like overcome. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when I take a look at it, I think it's interesting that, he, you know, he has uh, a level of like nostalgia or respect for the 19th century, like party machine model newspaper things because i was like oh well, yeah we have like the digital version of that now right but, but what's interesting is like to tie it to john's thing of like no resolution tied to the conflict like the agonism is permanent 
and non-negotiable because that's a great revenue model. And it's also because like, look, I mean, if we bring it back to like the American psycho thing, the way I read now, this is not exit. I hear it in Margaret Thatcher's voice, you Mm -hmm. know, (laughs) like that's what it means to be like out of options, you know? So, because like, what are you actually fighting over here? I mean, like that's what, um, who's the guy that runs the pull request Substack? Um, Antonio Garcia Martinez. Yeah. Yeah. He had that thing about that guy who guy's book history has begun. And he talks about how like, yeah, we're not even having like conversations about anything. That's like fucking, there's a real conversation to have about the tragedy of white suicide in flyover country and uh, black on black crime in inner city ghettos, which are, the result of total abandonment of these people. And I I read as deaths of despair, both. Yeah. You know, like those things to me are an absolute tragedy, you know, and you don't even have to like, I think it's, I also think it's a mistake the way people like moralize about that shit. But of course, having a conversation where those two phenomenon are like linked together is totally verboten because frankly, the fault is absolutely bipartisan over an extended period of time uh, that doesn't fit the partisan media models that we have now that are totally bullshit. Yeah, no, it's, I, I thought it was interesting precisely for that, the reason that it, it sort of, um, his discussion of like 19th century journalism is surprising, I think, because it, it sounds like he's describing in positive terms, something like what we have today, but you yeah, know, yellow journalism. Yeah. Right. But but part of the difference is the the way that there could at least be a, a greater groundedness in the local and in a kind of um widely distributed civil society. And and that relates to I mean what John was saying relates to his discussion of like the third place, which you know is I think a, a pretty important part of the book. Um the mm-hmm. you know and, and he links it to journalism, right? That he says it's something like the tavern or the coffee house is itself a kind of form of media, you know, in this earlier period. And is also like closely linked to how like journalists operate and like where they spend their time and and that that, you know, that's pretty much something that that dies out. So, you know, so so what we have is this kind of hyper-partisan media, which is totally, which is just kind of floating in this sphere of kind of surface abstractions. Where rebellion is good, but rebellion also doesn't matter because don't worry, we've all got insurance. <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. it's sort of like we've already hedged against there being any productive action here. So like, don't worry right. about exactly. it. You're not going to actually experience any change, but you're going to feel like something's happening. And I mean, it reminds me of, in Culture of Narcissism, the little passage on Bernadine Dorn of the Weather Underground, her uh, Bill Ayers is yeah. her husband and how really what her activism was about was like feeling the rush and the thrill of it and was yeah, like so- her own like death drive and I mean I think that that's ultimately like what we're um, looking at here we've talked about it as like civic atrophy or the bunga guys I think this is adjacent uh, refer to it as neoliberal order breakdown syndrome knobs but but it almost is like we're we've been driving through the suburban neighborhood of America and we finally entered the cul-de-sac that actually has a dead end sign. And now it seems like we're actually lost. I think that that is the major feeling that I have coming out of this year is that 
Part of the reason we started this podcast is because there seemed to be a lack of context in many of the offerings in like, you know, whether we're left or not, I don't really give a shit. But like in this sort of sphere about like why things are the way they are and that that has been part of like the poverty of anything that we've seen offered here is that there aren't really like compelling explanations. And I think that has to do with the fact that like the productive or reproductive quality of these disenfranchised like media elites or like whatever we're calling them is really to just reproduce their own resentment and discontent because in a world where your pain is the defining aspect of your entire personality, that is of course going to be the most relevant signifier that you can produce in order to justify your desire to enjoy within standard limits. Yeah, I think one of the most kind of relieving kind of thoughts of this year for me has been that all discourse is basically ersatz discourse. And I think like you said, it, it's about a rush and it makes me a little bit more interested in some of that stuff about the gamification of society. Because when you think about it, like Twitter and Facebook and stuff were designed in a sort of gamified way for like dopamine hits and things like that. Um, and similarly to like playing WoW or Diablo or whatever, like you get the reward at just the right kind of um, interval that you're going to keep going and like it'll keep building this sort of little dependence mechanism in your thinking and how we're just doing stuff just to feel something in some way. And so it's like some people are like, oh, like, you know, I do the the riot for the rush or whatever but obviously you can't actually experience that on this like like a on a on a surface um thinking level is that because so it's more of like i'm just doing what's right and it just happens to feel good also at the same time in a certain way that goes at a certain interval well, i want to keep doing it but you know i'm not going to think too hard about that but i don't know like for me it's just like yeah the only thing you can do even to like start thinking about stuff is to like disengage to some extent, like just, you know what I mean? Just to like stop plugging into most of it. I don't know when this is going to come out, but we're a few days away from the election. Yeah. We're on a two week time delay, two and a half week. So, (laughs) okay. Well, who knows, you know, we'll see, but Emmett and I were talking about sharing, reminiscing about 2016 before this. And yeah, I've, I'm experiencing this in a very different way than I did 2016 in part because um, I've just uh, disengaged and and kind of unplugged myself from many of the things that a lot of people I know are still hyper in game in terms of news cycles and, you know, supposed political motives and so on. And, you know, a good part of the reason for that is honestly that I I started during the Trump term to the I mean early on in the first the after 2016 just to see the the disconnect between the incredible pitch of media rhetoric and just the fact that for the vast majority of people in the in this country it did not change anything they did not end up and particularly those who are you know supposedly the people who the Democrat, you know, Democrats and their supporters care about, right? Um, you know, the mo- most vulnerable and marginal, etc. Like, I think it's pretty clearly established in all sorts of ways that most of, you know, people from that demographic are pretty politically disengaged, don't pay attention to, you know, they're the least likely to follow the sort of standard political news cycles, because they feel and know that it ultimately isn't going to 
do anything for them. That, that politics as a band has less have le- has left them behind, has abandoned them, right? And I mean, you know, Chris Arnade has good stuff about this. Um, he had a recent piece called "The Non-Voter." So, you know, I, I just think um, you, you know, when, when you disengage, you're just actually becoming like the major, you're, you know, you're, you're disconnecting from the hyper online and hyper educated people who you may know, as I do, and, you know, grew up among as I did. But, you know, on the other hand, you're basically just accepting what the, actually the majority of people in the country have, have accepted, which is much of what passes for politics just isn't doing anything for them and is more a sideshow than anything else. And I mean, this, this is something that I addressed in the piece. Um, I will perhaps quote a little bit from it. Please do. I talked about how Lash's book is kind of subtly a critique of postmodern politics um, in which contestation becomes limited to the field of representations, images, and spectacles. So, you know, if, if essentially the the ruling class, um, the elite, is is this class that exists in this realm of the the symbolic, currently the the digital computer, you know, of computerized models of reality, then you know essentially what that means is that you know as Lash writes, Washington became a parody of Tinseltown. Executives take to the airwaves, creating overnight the semblance of political movements. Movie stars become political pundits, even presidents reality and the simulation of reality become more and more difficult to distinguish. So that's one of his sort of Baudrillardian moments. But, you know, it really does speak to the way that the way our our minds are sort of harnessed to this endlessly unfolding spectacle, you know, through these kind of dopamine reward circuits, you know, is, is just sustaining this basically hollow and pointless spectacle that doesn't really do much of anything for much of anybody. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, you know, when um, my main prediction for the election is whatever happens, unfortunately, not much is going to change. <laughs> you know, Alien versus predator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's uh yeah, well, we'll see. So this will come out a little bit afterwards. So I guess we'll, we'll see uh, where we're at with that. But I, th- I think this does help us understand why nothing really feels possible right now. Um, especially when there's such uh, surface level radicalism, you know, um, and things like that. So Jeff, I really want to thank you for coming on. This was excellent. We appreciated having thanks, you. Thanks, Britt. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and uh, listeners, everybody out there um, stay safe and we'll see you next week.